Good morning. You know, when uh, we sing those songs, the intention is that we meditate on those words and that we find fresh reminders of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Christian faith. So my prayer is that we've already heard the word as we have meditated on it through song and as we have heard it even prayer, as we've heard it reflected upon this morning. I hope that you're glad to be here to worship God today. That is what we do here at Four Corners Church. That's what, what the church exists to do. That is worship the Lord. And one of the ways that we worship God is by receiving his word, by sitting under his holy scriptures. And that is uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, we do as a, as a practice is to preach through the scriptures. And right now we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We have uh, preached through in the history of Four Corners Church a number of books or sections of books in God's Word, and we are currently in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're visiting with us here today, or maybe you, you've just come with a, a family member, that's where we're at, these, these various posters here, and also on the slides, uh, that we are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. It's those three chapters. Just a reminder that we worship God, not technology, and it always fails. God never fails. Technology almost always fails. Uh, at some point at least. So let me just kind of recap that little bit that I just did. So number five, that's what we're looking at today. Number five of six, the, the fifth illustration or example that Jesus gives to illustrate true righteousness. And this is a righteousness that surpasses the fallacious so-called righteousness of the religious leaders of Jesus's day. So you can imagine Jesus is is just kind of this pilgrim preacher sitting on this mountain and he's teaching people. And there were many religious leaders of that day who would have looked far more authoritative than Jesus in the sense that they would have carried around that aura of being a religious guru. They, they had their robes. They had their uh, other trinkets associated with being a religious leader. The scribes and the Pharisees were looked up to as those people who had the truth or who at the very least could provide an interpretation of the truth which God had revealed in his law. So look at chapter 5, verse 20, just to set up what we're doing today. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is the scribes and Pharisees are going to hell, essentially. The scribes and Pharisees, those who think that they are not only on their way to heaven, but those who think they will be on their way to heaven in this beautiful entourage, standing right next to God as the great ones are on their way to hell. And so Jesus says, unless you have something different than those guys, that's where you are headed to. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven, and nor will you. Jesus is saying to all those listening on the mountain, unless what you have about you in terms of your righteousness, that which is good and right and proper, that which is in accordance with God's will, unless yours is qualitatively, categorically different than what those guys do and express, then there is no kingdom of heaven, no kingdom of God for you. Now that, all, that brings us to the fact that we are talking about the kingdom of God. This is the king, King Jesus, describing life in his kingdom and the lifestyle of his citizens. So one of the reasons that the Sermon on the Mount is so hard to interpret and has been misinterpreted in so many ways in so many passages is because very frequently people will come to the Sermon on the Mount and they will see it as this kind of dangling ethical code. This ethical code that you can just bring along and apply to any aspect of society or to society or to the world as a whole. The problem with that is that it takes the Sermon on the Mount, rips it out of its context, both theologically and within the book of Matthew, and it holds it up as this thing for society. 
The fundamental problem with that is that the Sermon on the Mount is an address given to those who are citizens of the king's kingdom. It is an address that is given to those who have, by God's grace, a new heart. Those who follow this king and who are in this kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. We know that the kingdom of God is going on all around us in all parts of the world. So we are members of the kingdom of God with people who live right now in North Korea, for example. Now they live under the dictatorial regime of North Korea. We live in the United States. We are in two different earthly kingdoms, yet we share a bond with them that far surpasses any bond that we simply share with fellow Americans. And that is we belong collectively to the kingdom of heaven. And the manifestation of that shows up in their lives as they engage with their world and their fellow neighbors. And that expresses itself in how we live out our lives. So we must remember the Sermon on the Mount is for kingdom citizens. And so far we've looked at how Jesus explicates the law and puts forth true righteousness on four important topics. So we're going through, we have six topics. Today is the fifth. These are examples of a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the four topics that we've looked at already that Jesus has addressed are murder, adultery, <coughs> divorce and remarriage considered together as one topic, and then oath-taking and truthfulness, which is what we looked at last week. And today we come to number five, and the topic for today is retaliation. That's what you will find. That's the, the heading that you will find in your ESV Bible. And the title of the sermon this morning is Operating Under an Offense, operating under an offense. What are we to do as Christians, as citizens of this kingdom, as people who belong to this king, what are we to do when we are offended, insulted, abused, attacked, and all of these other things? How are we to think about that, and how are we to respond to those offenses or those insults? That's what Jesus takes up in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. So let's go there. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Now we'll go ahead and read those verses now. <coughs> this is God's word. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, one commentator said, if, if I didn't think that the last two passages were the hardest, uh, one commentator said, no passage in the entire Sermon on the Mount has been more misinterpreted than this passage. I thought, okay, great. That's going to be an exciting one to work through. And, and I think one of the things that you will, you will see as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, especially with this section, is that it's a highly legal section, which means that if you're going to understand each of these little, little topics that we've covered, you have to kind of dig into the, you have to go, kind of put, a, put your lawyer hat on and you have to enter into the situation that exists between the law as it stands, the interpretation of the law by the scribes and Pharisees, and then Jesus's explication of that law going around the scribes and Pharisees, telling you what that law is truly about, and even unfolding it in a, in a fresh way as he himself is the fulfillment of it. So he explicates it in all of its fullness and in all of its depth, in all of its reality and truth. And so you really can't just go through these passages and say, ooh, little nugget of application. Someone hits me on one cheek, I turn the other. Ooh, a little nugget of application. There we go, there we go, there we go. You have to kind of enter into the legal discussion. You have to enter into the depth of the interpretive battle if you will, 
in order to get what's going on and therefore in order not to misinterpret or misapply what Jesus is saying. And unfortunately, that's not something that always happens when people come to these texts. So let's pray. Ask for God's help. Ask for the illumination of his word. Apart from the spirit, there really is no preaching. There really is no hearing of, this, of the word. We need the spirit at every stage. So let's ask for his help this morning. <coughs> Our Father, Jesus tells us that if we will ask you, you will give us the spirit that you will make us to be filled with the Spirit, that you will help us to walk in the Spirit. We know that we live now as Christians according to the Spirit. We know that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We know that he is the seal and the pledge of our future redemption, the redemption of our bodies. When Christ returns in his glorified body and calls us into the air to meet him in full glory and splendor forever. And so we will be with the Lord. We know that your spirit does all of these things. And so God, we believe that he is one with you, Father and Son, that he is one person, member of the Trinity, and we ask that you will, will send him now to help us, that you will give us insight into the depth of your word, that you will apply it in ways that I cannot, in ways that only you can do, Father, that you will search every heart in this room and that you will make your word real and that you will make it to be, to be powerful and impactful in every life, in every circumstance, every relationship. God, you know what we come here today with, because you're with us all week. You're with us when we wake up. You're with us when we go out and when we come in, when we sit and eat, when we sleep. You are our Father. You know the way of the righteous, your word says. You care for us every day. And so God, as you have cared for us this past week, we now come together with all our individual cares, with all of our individual burdens and issues, and we come collectively together this morning to hear from your word, and we are trusting that you, oh God, by your spirit, would make it real to us and help us to live the life which you have called us to live and empowered us to live through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, God, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to give you five words or ideas this morning to help guide our journey through this text. If you'll go ahead and put up that first slide or that slide. So five words that will, I hope, kind of crack open this text and get us to a point on the other side where we can have a basic idea of what's going on here. Obviously, you know, one of the things that sermons sometimes do is raise more questions than they answer. And that's not because of the uh, intrinsic, you know, value of ambiguity, that, that you want it to be unclear or ambiguous. But hopefully what, what happens is as you come to Scripture, you begin to deal with the text, you begin to understand the text and apply it. And part of what Gospel Community Group is about is really taking what we've learned in the sermon, what we've learned through the exposition of God's Word, and then beginning to flesh that out in everyday life. Beginning to talk about each other's experiences as those experiences come up against the text of God's word and then God's word impacts those experiences and begins to bring real change. So I hope that's what's happening in our gospel community groups. But nonetheless, I hope that this will break open this text and help us to understand what is going on. So these five words, the justice, the vengeance, the relinquishing, the cross, and the hope. <clears throat> so first, the justice of God's law, the vengeance practiced by those who misinterpreted and misapplied God's law, the relinquishing of rights and death to self, to which Jesus has called all of his disciples, the cross where we find the supreme reason for and example of everything that we're going to find in this text, and then finally, the hope that must exist in those who would put this text into practice. You cannot, you will not 
put this text into practice if you lose sight of the cross and if you lose sight of your future hope. Everything that we find here is built on the cross work of Christ and the hope that we have through that cross work. And hopefully we'll see that at the end today. So let's look first at the justice. The justice. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 of our passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth sort of one of the oldest legal principles in, among mankind. This is one of the oldest ideas that you will find. The Code of Hammurabi, there's a, a, a massive statue of this in the Louvre in Paris. And, and this, is, this is kind of the oldest piece of law that we have where we can look at and see this. It dates from 1700 BC. And in that law code, you see this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All of us have heard of this idea, even if we haven't encountered this passage of Scripture before, you've probably undoubtedly in our culture heard that idea or that phrase used, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This statement comes from a number of Old Testament passages that read like this. So I'm gonna read three to you. Hear what it says. Exodus 21, 23 to 25, but if there is harm then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, <coughs> excuse me, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We hear the same language in Leviticus 24. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. It shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then we see it again in Deuteronomy 19. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And just kind of fill it in, you know, with all of the members of the body. It, basically, it's a, it's a full picture of a law of retaliation or what is called lex talionis, which is just simply an old Latin phrase for law of retaliation. And it was an important part of God's justice as expressed in the law of Moses. So when you hear eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this is a principle of God's law. This is something that Israel was to live by. It is truth. It is excellent. The law is holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans 7. The law is perfect. And this was part of the Mosaic law. And the just nature of these laws, for those of us who hear these and think, hold on a second, that sounds a little bit weird. Well, the just nature of these laws can be seen from a number of angles. So just think about it for a moment. If we're looking at these laws and we're thinking, oh, that sounds kind of barbaric. How do we understand how these laws are just? Well, the first thing that you would think about is from the perspective of the victim. A punishment was given that matched what was inflicted on the victim of the crime. And so in a very real concrete sense, the victim received justice. And isn't that something that we hope for as a society? Don't we sort of, isn't there an outcry when we see that, that our judicial system somehow does not uphold the rights of victims of crimes? When we see people who are released from prison who should not have been released from prison or people who do barbaric, horrific things and they don't face justice and the victim does not receive justice, there is an outcry in all of us, as there should be. Because in God's holy law, the victim should receive justice. And this is one of the ways that that happened. So first, from the perspective of the victim. Secondly, this form of punishment encouraged people to think in terms of what we call the golden rule. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, we will get that idea that, that we all are familiar with. Maybe, maybe you're here today, you didn't even know that that came from the mouth of Jesus. You've just heard it before, and it's something that you know is just part of our culture. Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
This is the golden rule. Jesus says, by the way, that all of the law and the prophets hang on this idea. So when you think about how do you relate to people? What is good and right and true in terms of how you respond to your neighbor and how you relate to your neighbor? And the answer is simply this. Do unto them as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. So how does this punishment encourage people to think in terms of the golden rule? Well, I think it encourages empathy. The effect of one's crime was brought to bear on one's own body. Think about it this way. You're committing, a, you're committing a crime, and as you are inflicting something on someone else, you are having to simultaneously be conscious of what it would be like if that were inflicted on you. Now, of course, you're a criminal. You're hoping that doesn't happen. You're hoping that you don't get caught, that you don't, that doesn't happen. You don't lose your tooth. You don't lose your eye. You don't lose your hand. You don't have to fracture your forearm or, what, or your foot or whatever the case might be. But you're forced, due to God's law being what it was, you're forced, as you're carrying out a crime against another person, to think in terms of what it would be like for that to be inflicted on you. In other words, it encourages what Jesus says is the, the high point of all the law and the prophets. It encourages this wonderful thing called empathy. And so we see there the justice of God's law. Thirdly, this form of punishment ensured that the consequences matched the crime. So listen to this. God cared even about the evildoer. Well, that's incredible. Because we, also, we know that in, that in the just, justice system that there are prosecutors and there are defendants. There are defense attorneys. And we have defense attorneys. And, and while sometimes we sort of shake our head at some of the things that, some of the antics of defense attorneys, we all recognize that, that that's an important part of the system. Because even the criminal has certain rights. Even the criminal should be defended. Maybe he or she did not commit the crime. Or maybe there are aspects of the crime that have not been explored or seen yet. So that when those come to the light of day, then the, the punishment will be a little different. So we all recognize that for there to be justice, there also needs to be some kind of sensitivity even for the criminal. And God demonstrates that even here. So how was that the case? Well, the punishment was to fit the crime. And it did this by taking retaliation out of the hands of individuals and putting it in the hands of officials. One of the things that has existed throughout history, and you can see this, you know, kind of going back, I can remember being on a trip to the mountains of Tennessee up around Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg area, and one of the things that we went on this sort of horseback riding tour, and one of the things that uh, the person talked about was these old feuds that used to exist in that part of the country, and that was something that we encountered when we lived in Scotland. There were these competing families or competing tribes that would have these blood feuds. And so one person would do something to the other person's family. And then would they sort of uh, do the, would they match the crime? Would they match the punishment to the crime? No, they would take out the whole family. Or, or they, one son would be killed and, and this family would kill all the sons of this. Well, then of course this family would go over there and would kill an entire village and so forth. We all know of these kinds of things. These blood feuds. And so what it did, what this law did was it took that out of the hands of the individuals and therefore ensured that there was not an overreaction, that the punishment fit the crime. And it wasn't this thing that sort of, oh, you, you hit me, so I'm going to kill you. It's kind of like we find in Genesis 4, 23. It's a very little detail in scripture. And maybe you've read through the early chapters of Genesis and you've just sort of skipped right over it. You know, you get Adam and Eve, you get the fall, and then immediately you go to Cain and Abel, and then immediately the next big thing sort of is the Noah narratives, and that's where you're at. But there's this little piece of information or this little illustration of human sinfulness that I think sometimes we could skip right over, and it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. This guy named Lamech, have you, do you remember reading about him? Have you encountered him? This guy named Lamech. Just another expression, because I think when we open up Genesis 4 and we read about Cain and Abel, we are meant to see that the devil was wrong. The devil said, you shall not surely die. Well, we know that at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden. 
But we haven't really seen death, so to speak, for human beings. And then at the beginning of Genesis 4, we see that it's not as though sin kind of evolved and progressed. It started out kind of petty and small and little and weak, but it got bigger and bigger and bigger. No, it started out immediately vile. One brother, through envy, pride, and pure hatred, kills his own brother. And then we get this little bit of information about Lamech, further illustrating the depth of human sinfulness. Genesis 4.23, I have killed a man. He's telling his wives this. You know, he's kind of beating his chest like King Kong. He's like, I have, I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. He hit me, I killed him. And that's exactly what is in the heart of human beings. And the truth is, that's what's in our heart. When someone does something wrong to us, I mean, we see this even, even when we're driving. You know, I, I always hate driving illustrations because one of the things I always used to hate in seminary was when preachers would come and they would sort of give an illustration of their own sinfulness and they would always use road rage as the kind of example of that. I always thought that was so funny and silly because it's kind of like, yeah, every once in a while I get mad in the car. It's just like, really? <laughs> that's, that's what you're going to hold out? But, you know, one of the things that we see in the car, one of the things that we see with road rage is someone sort of cuts us off and all of a sudden, I mean, we're just so angry at that person. What would we do if that person were right there? Sometimes we even hear on the news of people who get out of the car and shoot the other person because they cut them off in a car. This is the kind of thing that we're all wired with. Someone does a little thing against us, we do a big thing against them. We want a lot more. We don't just want the same We want a lot more consequence, punishment for what they did to us. So that's what's going on. And this is the Old Testament legal background to Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. God's just law of retaliation. That is true and good and right and excellent, and it was there. It was part of the law of the people of God, of Israel. It was part of the judicial law. But then we come to these scribes and Pharisees, and that's where we get to the vengeance. We have the justice of God's law, but then we have the vengeance of these scribes and Pharisees. Going back to the topic of murder, If you remember when we covered that or if you weren't here, uh, several weeks ago we looked at the topic of murder as we entered into this passage in verse 21 of Matthew 5. And going back to that topic, we have seen that Jesus begins his discussion of each of these topics by citing the prevailing teaching. So we've got the Old Testament law. Remember as I laid it out, we've got the Old Testament law. We have Jesus. And in between Jesus who, who explicates and unfolds the true depth of the Old Testament law and carries it forward and will put it on the hearts of his people by the Spirit. Between the law and Jesus, we've got these scribes and Pharisees. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he is saying, you are hearing in the synagogue this particular interpretation and application of that Old Testament law, the law that we just discussed. That is what stands between the law And Jesus, this is the prevailing teaching, the interpretations and applications of these religious leaders and teachers of the day. And in each case, as we've looked at it, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, in each case, what appears to be a restating of the law by these scribes and Pharisees is actually a reworking of the law. So here's the way the scribes and Pharisees portray the situation. There's God's law. There it is. I'm restating it for you. It is there and here it is. I'm just communicating. Hey man, I'm just a tube bringing this stuff to you. I'm just conveying it right to you so that you can know what God has said. The problem is that they're not merely restating it. They're reworking it. And they're doing it sometimes in very subtle, crafty ways. And by the way, let me say this. This is satanic. Every time the word of God is twisted, even subtly, as in Genesis 3, Has God, did God say you could not eat of all of the trees of the garden? Satan subtly there twisting God's word. God said you could eat of any tree of the garden except one. Satan twists that and says, did God say you could not eat of any 
of the trees of the garden. This is satanic, but this is what these men are doing. And in fact, Jesus calls them children of their father, the devil, the father of lies. What they are doing is by its very nature deceitful. It's twisting, it's reworking, it's perverting God's word. So how are the scribes and the Pharisees reworking, perverting, or twisting the law of God? And I think Jesus' response makes clear what they're doing. Notice that Jesus' response deals with personal relationships. We read the text a moment ago, and we'll go in and look at it more in a moment. But if you look at verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he goes down and he gives these four illustrations. As we look at that, one of the things that we see is that all of these deal with personal relationships. Someone is insulting you, what do you do? What do you do if someone is suing you or if someone is coercing you or if someone is asking you for your property? What do you do in these situations in which you're dealing with individuals, where people are dealing with other people on an individual personal basis? That is what Jesus responds to. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus doesn't go back in and talk about judges. He doesn't go back in and talk about priests. He doesn't go back in and talk about the, the judicial system of ancient Israel. He does none of that. He goes and talks about personal relationships. What does this tell us? It tells us that the religious leaders were extending the law of retaliation, the lex talionis, they were extending that to personal relationships. So here's what John Stott says about what these guys are doing with the law. He says, this excellent principle of judicial retribution, he's talking about the Old Testament law, this excellent principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing that it was instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. So the reason that you have this law of retaliation is so that people won't take revenge personally, so that there won't be these blood feuds. What's happening is that these scribes and Pharisees are using this law for personal Revenge. D.A. Carson describes the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees in this way. The question then became, how far may my personal retaliation extend without breaking the law? How far can I go without breaking the law? Because these guys were maximal law keepers. I mean, these guys were so tedious and meticulous in their keeping of the law. Remember we talked about divorce. Their concern was to make sure that that divorce certificate was filled out. Remember when we talked about oaths. They didn't care about being honest to other people, about speaking the truth, about their word actually meaning something. What they cared about was a technicality of the law, that you could not say something false and use God's name, or substitute for God's name, a valid substitute that they decided on, a valid substitute for God's name, in a swear, together, <gasps> That was serious business. Anything else was totally fine. Divorcing your wife for whatever reason, totally fine. Just make sure that you give her a certificate of divorce. That's exactly what these guys are doing. And now they're asking the question, how far can I take this personal retaliation thing without breaking the law? Because Lord knows I don't want to break the law. That is the mindset of these legalists. And this oftentimes shows up in our minds too. Think about it this way. How often in your own life, or maybe you've been sitting across from a, a new Christian and you hear people say, talk like this. Is this a sin? Is that a sin? Well, okay, hold on a second. So if I do this, is that a sin? But if I do this, I do this that's not a sin, but that's a sin. And that is actually one of the ways, I mean, we all do this, so don't take this as an absolute statement, but that is one of the ways that you can kind of begin to understand whether someone has really understood the gospel and been converted. If your mind is still there, you may not be a Christian. In, fi in fact, there's a high likelihood, if that's the way you think about it, that you're not a Christian. And here's why. Because the spirit of God's truth, the spirit of the law written on the heart does not think in those terms. We do, in fact, think about does this please God? Is this God's will? Should I not do this or should I do that? We, of course, think in those terms. But we're not little legalists thinking in terms of that act is sin, but if I can scurry around that act and maybe do this instead, that's not sin. When you think like that, there are two problems. One, you're a legalist. 
meaning that all you think about is a code of ethics. The do's and the don'ts. You do the do's, God gives you a thumbs up. You do the don'ts, God gives you a thumbs down. The other problem with that way of thinking is that it is entirely and merely external. In other words, once you're asking questions like, is this a sin, is that a sin, is that a sin? Uh, hold on a second, so, so that's not a sin, but that is a sin. Once you're thinking in those terms, you've lost sight of the heart. All you're focused on is the external act itself. And that's what we find with these, these men, these scribes and Pharisees. But the Old Testament was clear that retaliation for individuals was not God's will. So listen to this, Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. This is a little softer than Lamech. Lamech says, I will do to him many more times what he has done to me. And maybe some of us think, well, you know, as long as I don't think in those terms, as long as it's eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, it's okay. I will do to him as he has done to me. And it will be even. It will be settled. Writer of Proverbs says, do not say that. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Do not say that that. And Jesus wants to bring out this teaching in its fullness. This was already present. I want you to see it. That's, that's the main thing I want you to see at this point, is that the idea of not getting personal revenge was already a part of the teaching of the law. We find it in the first five books in the law of Moses, but we also see it in Proverbs. We see it in 1 Samuel. As David is relating to Saul, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. That personal vengeance, personal retribution, retaliation are not God's will. And Jesus wants to bring all this teaching out. He wants to shut the mouths of the hypocritically legalistic scribes and Pharisees who are turning the people away from the truth. And that is what he's doing in these six examples and illustrations in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I think it's important to hover a little longer on this fact that Jesus is dealing with personal relationships or personal interactions. You've probably heard this said before. Maybe you haven't, but you probably have heard it said that a text like this offers teaching against the resistance of evil by police or by the military. This is actually a view that was held by Tolstoy. This is a view that has been held by a number of pacifists that the, the military and the police are kind of intrinsically bad because when Jesus says, do not resist the evil person, we know that police officers resist, thank God, the evil person. And the military also resists under just war, and that's another topic, resists those who do evil. But some people have said that a text like this tells us that those things cannot be, or at the very least, that Christians should not serve in these capacities. So the church has always dealt with this mentality, even in the, Ro in the Roman period, in the very earliest centuries. Should Christians be in the Roman army today? Should Christians serve in the military? Should Christians be police officers and other kinds of officials who by their very nature have to exact violence on evildoers? Is that unchristian? Is that anti-Christian? Is that out of sync with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount or in the Sermon on the Mount? The problem with that is that Jesus is clearly not talking about the state. He's not talking about the judiciary. He's not talking about the government. Jesus is talking about how individual Christians should respond when personally offended. How they should operate under an offense. We know that because every one of the illustrations that Jesus will go on to give deals with individual relationships. And we know from Romans 13 
that God has given government to human beings specifically for the purpose of resisting evil. So maybe this is a viewpoint that you've had. Maybe you've kind of wrestled with this and you've thought, you know, can a Christian be in the military? Can a Christian be in the police? And I think this is not always a black and white question because it would also depend on the kind of government under which you, under which you live. And I think there are all kinds of other questions that go into something like this. But I want you to leave at least hearing the words of Romans 13 to show, to demonstrate how that interpretation, which I just held up, can't be. Romans 13, 2 to 4 says this. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Paul is talking about the pagan Roman Empire, none of whom would have been, or very tiny amount of whom would have been Christians. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And though those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, the ruler, and everything that falls under the ruler? That would include the military, the police. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And then these incredible words. For he is God's servant. God's servant. The magistrate is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. And here's what I want you to see. This this makes that interpretation that I just held up, Tolstoy's interpretation, impossible. For he is the servant of God. This is the magistrate, who may or may not be a Christian. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you see that? So, so Jesus says, do not resist the evil person. Well, we know he's not talking about the same thing that Paul's talking about in Romans 13 because it is intrinsic to those people to do harm to wrongdoers. That's what they are instituted by God to do and to be. In fact, that is at the top of the list for why they even exist. Isn't that incredible? In a fallen world, at the top of the list for why there are magistrates is to execute God's wrath on those who harm others and who break the law. That's what Romans 13 teaches. So Jesus is certainly not making an absolute claim that no one should resist evil. And by the way, this is one of the problems with a red-letter Bible. Sometimes you open up the Bible and you read the red letters and you think, okay, that's what Jesus said. And then this over here is what some guy named Paul said. Okay, I'm going to go with Jesus because it's in red. And that is the real Bible. The Bible within the Bible, the black letter stuff is kind of secondary. And that's one of the problems with that is you don't see it all as God's word. It all comes from God. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples? By the way, this would be a really good time to let you know That number four and number five are going to be very brief and together. And actually, I didn't think that those would be points. But I decided at the end of the day to make those separate points. They're going to come in really quick at the end, so don't worry. I know you're thinking that. So number three, the relinquishing. Look at verses 39 to 42. Verses 39 to 42. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That is Jesus' response to this vindictiveness of these scribes and Pharisees. The word resist conveys the idea of opposing or setting oneself against someone. The opening words, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and the first example of turning the other cheek make clear that we are dealing with non-retaliation when offended or abused by an evildoer. That is Jesus' main idea. Do not retaliate. And four examples are given in our passage. And, And really, honestly, these are just sort of four ways that Jesus makes this concrete. He says, do not resist an evil person. And then Jesus wants to give you kind of four little scenarios. He gives you first a scenario that deals with dignity. This deals with an insult. Then he gives a scenario that deals with kind of a legal situation. Has to do with a person's security. 
And then liberty, a person being forced to do something that they do not want to do. And then property, someone coming and asking for your stuff. Give me some of your stuff. And that's what we have in the fourth example. John MacArthur summarizes these under these four categories, dignity, security, liberty, and property. And I think that's pretty fitting. So let's walk through these quickly. First, turning the other cheek pictures a backhand to the right cheek. So most people were right-handed. And one of the worst things that you could do, two of the worst things you could do to someone, well, three actually, is smack them, number one. Number two, smack them on the right cheek. And number three, smack them on the right cheek with the back of your hand. To backhand, and we, we, we understand that today. We even talk about that. You know, being backhanded is kind of, oh my goodness. It's like being spit, someone spitting in your face. It is a horrible insult. And that is exactly what we have here. As most would have been right-handed, a, a smack to the right cheek would have been a backhand. The image here is of maximum insult. And Jesus says, rather than retaliate, take the insult. And even more, be open to further insult if it comes. That's incredible. That's what Jesus is saying. Second, by the way, we're not talking about violent crime here. We're not talking about you can't learn jujitsu and karate and taekwondo and defend yourself when you get attacked. In fact, this past week over at 15 Perry Street, there were a few ladies of our church who went to a self-defense class. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You should defend yourself. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, and one, some have argued that it's even in the context of being persecuted as a Christian. We're not talking about someone coming to attack you, kill you, and take you away and kidnap you. We're talking really about an insult. Someone just smacking you upside the face and insulting you. That is really what is going on. Second, being sued takes us back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. But here the person is described as evil, probably because it is a person who wants to take even the shirt off your back. Someone sues you to take your tunic. By the way, the tunic was kind of an undergarment that went against your skin. And what Jesus says is if someone sues you, so you're going to court, you've wronged someone or there's been some kind of legal dispute and they sue you, they, they want to sue you even to the point of taking the shirt off your back. You give them your shirt off your back. And you give them your outer garment too. And what's amazing about this in that culture is that the law stipulated that the outer garment could not be given, it could not be taken from someone. It had to be given back to them before nightfall because the outer garment was seen as a means of survival. It was what people would use if they had no home or whatever. They could at least cover themselves with the outer garment to try to stay warm. And Jesus says, give them that too. Give them that. To. Rather than retaliate, give even this. It's a reminder, I think, of 1 Corinthians 6, 7, where it says that it is better to suffer and be defrauded than to parade one another through court among unbelievers. You ever thought about that? I mean, that, this is not, Jesus' words here are not outlawing lawsuits. Sometimes those things happen. Whether you own a business or it's a personal situation, those things are going to happen. But one of the things that I've always found amazing is how Christians, even within the, the same church, can so quickly sort of bring lawsuits against one another and go out into the world and battle it out in court. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it would be better for you to be wronged, to be defrauded, than to do that. Hanging your stuff out there for unbelievers to see. Third, being made to travel a mile. A Roman practice was that if, you, if, if a Roman soldier were kind of coming through town, he could take your donkey. He was like, give me that. He could take whatever he needed from you. He could even take you and put something on your back and say, I need you to carry this. We have Simon of Cyrene who carries Jesus' cross. The Roman soldier grabbed him and employed him and he had to do it. And it was customary that you, had, that you could go up to one mile. And Jesus says, you go up to one mile and then guess what? You just keep going. Instead of getting angry and bitter, take this service, this act of loving, self-giving service even further. And the way that I think this applies to us is when we're asked to do things that we don't want to do, or shouldn't have to do. That's the big thing. How often do people in our lives ask us to do things that we should not have to do? We say, that's not my job. That is not my responsibility. 
I should not have to do that. That is your job. That's what you are being paid to do. That's what you need to do. Instead of, instead of taking that and doing those things, we are very quick, very quick to say, I shouldn't have to do that. That's not part of it. Jesus is saying, take that whole way of living and smash it because that's not the way we live in the kingdom. That's not the way of a citizen of this king's kingdom. And the final illustration or picture or scenario that we get from Jesus is being asked to part with your own property. This is probably one of the hardest things to do for us in our materialistic society. Giving up our stuff, the things that we love so much. And Jesus says, give freely and do not refuse. But I think one thing that we need to understand here is that what is in view is giving to those in need. Let me say this, not indiscriminate giving. We know that, right? Because Proverbs talks about not putting up a pledge for another person, not going into debt for another person. That is what we call foolish. That is not righteous. That is foolish. To do that is not being like Christ here. It's being foolish. We also know from 1 John 3, That the focus is on someone who is in desperate need or just in need. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is not indiscriminate giving to whoever would ask. This does not tell us, this is not to be seen as a legal principle where you walk out of here today and anyone who asks, asks you for anything whatsoever, you must give it to them. You must give it to them now. You must not withhold it. You must give freely. If that's the case, all Christians would be broke. All Christians would have absolutely nothing. That's not what Christ is asking us to do here. But he is asking us to be free in our giving, not to hold on tightly to those things which he has given us. In fact, Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, he's telling these Thessalonians, if there's a guy among you who's just sitting around all day in a lawn chair, lazy, not doing any work, don't give him that. Don't feed that. And largely, that's what we're talking about when we do When Helping Hurts. You know, Pete and Pete Benson and Mike Strain have gone and they've, they've been trained in this and they've come back and they've shared this with our gospel community group leaders. And this is a kind of a template or a model for how we're going to move forward as a church in terms of thinking about helping uh, the materially poor. And one of the principles of When Helping Hurt is that you don't just give and do indiscriminately, that you think wisely about being a follower of Jesus and you want to help people not hurt them. Sometimes helping them on the surface really means hurting them. Jesus is not calling for that. He's not calling for the drug addict that you know down the street who comes to your front door and knocks on it and says, I need five bucks. And you give him five bucks because you read Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, and that's what Jesus said to do. That's not wise. That's not what God is asking us to do. But he is asking us to give freely from the heart, especially when there is a need. The big idea that I want you to see is before we move on to these last two points quickly is that this involves relinquishing self. That's really what all of this is about. When we become a Christian, we die to ourselves and we belong to another. And that is what all of this really is. It's about dying to ourselves, dying to our dignity, Dying to our security, dying to our supposed liberty, dying even to our own property as we understand ourselves as having died with Christ and being raised with him to newness of life, being owned by him, bought by him, and being an instrument for his glory and the good of others in the world. That's what's in view here, relinquishing all of that and being a means of God's glory going forth in the world. This is what it means to be salt and light. This is what Paul means when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't only not retaliate, we do good. We don't just get bitter. We don't just not get bitter. We go the extra mile. We don't just not pop the person back in the face who hit us in the face. We turn the other cheek. It's not just not repaying evil for evil. It's overcoming evil with good. 
As we finish this morning, I want to look at these last two points together, the cross and the hope. Remember that the life put forward in the Sermon on the Mount is the life of Christ. Remember that. We talk about the Christian life, we talk about one idea, and that is Christ-likeness. We talk about sanctification. It's not about being a better person, getting your ducks in a row. It's about being conformed into the image of Jesus. That is the Christian life. That is sanctification. So what we need to see here is as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we are seeing little facets of Jesus' character. And I think we see that at the cross. 1 Peter 2 23 to 24, tell us what Jesus did at the cross. This is what it says. When he was reviled, insulted, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So here's what I want you to see. Three things quickly. First, the cross gives us the supreme example of everything we've been talking about. Jesus, at the cross, practices what he preaches here in this passage. We see him at the cross receiving all of these insults, receiving all of these threats, being smacked around and spit upon. And what does he do? He does not revile in return. Instead, as we'll come to next week, he prays, Father, forgive them. That's what we see at the cross. The supreme example that we are to follow. We also see the reason. We are those who have died to sin and now live to righteousness. Sin says, get angry. Sin says, get that person back. Can't believe they did that to me. That's what sin says. But righteousness says, no. Mercy, love, gentleness, patience, kindness. Christ, that is what righteousness says. And finally, the cross also, also points us to our hope. Why did Jesus not retaliate? It's not just, oh, Jesus, it's not, it's, it's, it's not as simple as just, oh, that's who Jesus was. There's something a little deeper there that you have to see. Jesus did not retaliate because, it says in this text, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The author of the law of retaliation. He is the God who will repay every act of evil. Every word and every act from every human being will be judged justly by God in accordance with his holy law. One day, Jesus knew that. He continually entrusted himself to the one who would judge those men justly and who would vindicate him by raising him from the dead. He went through it. He went through it. He's insulted. He's beaten and he's trusting God looking to his future hope. And that's the only reason that any of us is able to do this. For those who do not hope in God, hear this. For those who do not hope in God, their dignity, security, liberty, and property are everything. That's all they have. So when someone comes along and wants to take their stuff when someone comes along and wants to steal away their pride and their dignity, when someone comes along and wants to steal their garments or whatever else it is or, or sue them for their things or ask them to do things they don't want to do, outrage, outrage. These are mine. These are my things. No. And that is what the person does who does not hope in God, who hopes in those things. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, are those who hope in the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power and truth. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus who bore our sins on the tree, who died for us, who gave us the perfect example 
and then who put that very character inside of each of us by your spirit. God, we thank you that he went to prepare a place for us, that where he is, there we may be also. He prayed to you, Father, that we would be with him where he is to see his glory. God, what a wonderful thing it is to know that you always answer the prayers of your son and that one day we will see him in his glory in answer to his prayer in John 17. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.